Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's Teleforum Conference Call. This afternoon's topic is a Courthouse Steps oral argument episode on U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service versus the Sierra Club. My name is Greg Walsh, and I am an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have joining us Nancy Marzula, partner at Marzula Law, Damian Schiff, Senior Attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. After our speakers give their opening remarks, we will go to audience Q&A. Thank you all for sharing with us today. Nancy, the floor is yours. Thank you, Greg. I'm, of course, Nancy Marzula, as Greg introduced me, and I am here, uh, as Greg also noted, with Damian Schiff. He is a senior attorney in the Environmental Practice Group at Pacific Legal Foundation, and Damien focuses on litigation involving the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act. So we are here today to discuss the Supreme Court's decision in U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service versus Sierra Club, which was issued a week ago and was the first decision, Supreme Court decision, I should say, authored by Justice Barrett. Now, at first blush, that decision appears to be a fairly unremarkable decision involving the government's use of the deliberative process privilege, uh, Exemption 5, for those of you who are uh, up on FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. But a closer reading of that decision, as Damien and I will discuss today, will reveal that there are another, a number of important issues implicated in this ruling. So first, you're going to hear from Damien, who will describe the issues in the case, the court's decision, and the underpinnings uh, of that decision. Thank you, Nancy, and thank you to the Federal Society for hosting today's call. As Nancy mentioned, the decision from last week in Fish and Wildlife versus Sierra Club concerned Exemption 5 of FOIA, which um, excludes from the obligation to disclose public documents under FOIA for those documents that are interagency or interagency memorandums or letters that would not be available by law to a party in litigation with the agency. And that general privilege has been interpreted by the Supreme Court to include the deliberative process privilege, a privilege that says that the government doesn't have to disclose materials that assisted decision makers in reaching a decision, but do not actually reflect the final decision or the rationales relevant to the final decision, but rather were preparatory documents to reaching that final decision. Now, the specific documents at issue in Sierra Club were created as part of a consultation under the Endangered Species Act. Now, under the ESA, federal agencies are generally required to consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service and with the National Marine Fisheries Service to determine whether their proposed activities may jeopardize the continued existence of species that are protected under the Endangered Species Act. At the end of this consultation, the Fisheries Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service are supposed to produce what's called a biological opinion. This is a document that 
includes the agency's assessment as to how the proposed project might affect endangered species. And it also provides alternatives, what the statute calls reasonable and prudent alternatives, that the wildlife agencies think might be appropriate substitutes for the original proposed action. In Sierra Club, the particular consultation concerned a 2011 EPA proposed regulation under the Clean Water Act regulating cooling a water cooling apparatus for large industrial facilities. Because these water cooling structures, when they suck in water, can harm aquatic organisms, some of which are protected under the ESA, the EPA sent its proposed rule to the Fish and Wildlife Service and to the Fisheries Service to get their input through this consultation process. By late uh, December of 2013, the services had prepared what looked like near final draft biological opinions. And these documents concluded that EPA's proposal was in itself in serious jeopardy because it was going to harm endangered species. But at the last minute, the services decision makers decided we're not going to send these drafts over to EPA. We need to do more work on them before we can share them in total with EPA. But shortly thereafter, EPA decided, based upon excerpts of these draft opinions that had gone over already to EPA, that it had better change its original proposal. And at that point, the draft opinions were set aside. EPA came up with a new water intake rule, and the services produced new biological opinions, concluding that the new revised rule was A-OK under the Endangered Species Act. Now, shortly thereafter, Sierra Club and other environmental groups filed a lawsuit challenging that EPA rule, but they also filed a FOIA request wanting to get those original draft biological opinions, saying, hey, we think these are pretty darn important because they seem to have had a significant effect on EPA's decision to change the final version of its regulation, and we'd like to see those documents. The government said, no, we're not going to turn them over because they're deliberative. They were drafts of draft biological opinions. They never were finalized by the agencies, and therefore we don't have to provide them to you under FOIA. That is the issue that the Supreme Court then had to decide last week in Sierra Club. Were these documents subject to that FOIA exemption for deliberative process materials? I think you can analyze the majority opinion from Justice Barrett in two parts. One, it talks about sort of general principles to guide how lower courts should apply the deliberative process exemption under FOIA. And the second part that talks about how those general principles apply in the unique context of these ESA consultations. So as to the first point, or the first set of issues on what are the general rules, the uh, Justice Barrett's majority opinion essentially adopts and codifies an opinion by then-Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit concerning the same FOIA exemption. That is the principle that a document is not final simply because nothing follows after it. Sometimes a, rep a proposal, quote, dies on the vine. So the court is saying you cannot demand a document simply because it looks like it was the last in a series of documents. Rather, what you have to decide is whether that document is not just last, but also whether it communicates or explains a policy on which the agency actually has settled. So it's not just last, but it's also this is the relevant document or set of documents explaining what the agency has done. Now, the court does emphasize, though, that this test 
is not a formal inquiry. It's a functional inquiry. And the court pretty clearly rejects, the majority pretty clearly rejects the idea that an agency can get around the disclosure obligation under FOIA simply by stamping draft on documents, that that's not enough. That in fact, there has to be an analysis to whether are the agencies actually treating this document or portions of this document as in fact representing the final word. That's really what should determine the uh, ultimate uh, analysis. Now, as for the specific context here of biological opinions under the Endangered Species Act, I think it's fair to say that the majority opinion essentially says that draft biological opinions are presumptively deliberative because they are draft. Now, there's some tension here, of course, with the idea that, well, you can't just stamp draft on something and get a disclosure avoided. But nevertheless, I think that's the, the thrust of the majority opinion. These are, in fact, draft. They are designed to invite input from the other cooperating agencies. It is expected that there are going to be changes to these drafts before they are finalized. And those factors support the conclusion that we shouldn't be surprised that draft biological opinions are pretty much going to be exempt more often than not. Now, the court does have a very important exception, you could say, or, or proviso in footnote four of the majority opinion, where the court says that if the services make clear that there are portions of the quote-unquote draft biological opinion that the agencies are treating as final, for which they're not asking for input, for which they're essentially saying, this is how it's going to be from here on out. The court then was willing to entertain the idea that that part of the draft biological opinion could be disclosable. But the court also concluded that there's no help for Sierra Club here with that exception, because the court concluded based upon its review of the record that these were not even draft biological opinions, they were draft of draft biological opinions for two reasons. One, that in fact, neither document had ever been formally signed off on by the relevant agency decision maker. And two, and perhaps more importantly, there were in fact declarations in the record submitted under penalty of perjury from these relevant government officials saying, no, we really meant that, that, that there really needed to be more work done on these documents. That's why we didn't send them over to EPA. That's why they weren't final. And that's why they should be considered deliberative. In reaching that conclusion, in supporting the government's decision not to disclose, the court pretty soundly rejects Sierra Club's test, which is something like an operative effects test. That is that what we really should be looking at is, do these documents have an impact? And we knew from the record that obviously these drafts of drafts, however you want to call them, did have an impact on EPA because once EPA got word of how things were coming down with the service and the fishery service, EPA changed course and decided to, to do a different regulation to amend the, the proposal. The, the, the Justice Barrett's majority opinion says that's not a workable test because you could point to any number of staff um, memoranda or emails that maybe could have a a, a but-for impact on how EPA might proceed with its rulemaking, that that isn't what matters. Rather, what matters is, did the relevant agency, agency decision makers actually treat something as its final word? And again, the court concluded here that the draft biological opinions here were not the agency's final word on anything, that they were, in fact, drafts of drafts. 
So that, in a nutshell, is is the court's decision, both with respect to the FOIA exemption generally for deliberative process materials, as well as the specific application of that principle to the, uh, again, unique context of consultations under the Endangered Species Act. With that, I'd like to hand things over again to, uh, for to Nancy to discuss the dissent's response to this and some more policy questions about the role the deliberative process privilege plays in FOIA. And again, uh, to remind everyone, Nancy is a founding partner of Marzula Law in D.C. And uh, she, as my practice, her practice also focuses on litigating a number of environmental and constitutional issues in federal courts. Nancy? Thank you, Damien, and let me join you in thanking the Federalist Society for uh, making this uh, teleforum possible. Uh, this is an interesting case, and Damien has done an excellent job of summarizing the issues in the decision, but there are a number of loose threads that I think we ought to pull and see where they go. The first um, thread I would draw your attention to is the fact that there were six amicus briefs filed in the case. There were briefs filed by a variety of organizations, um, some of whom authored the brief and other organizations which signed on to the briefs. Um, and all of these briefs were filed in support of Sierra Club, not a single entity filed a brief in support of the government's position in this case. So let's take a look at these amicus briefs. Um, I put them generally into three categories. The first I would categorize as briefs filed by ACLU, uh, ACLU uh, various chapters and similar organizations the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and 28 media organizations. Um, together, these organizations argued to the court that the primary purpose of FOIA is to prevent the development of secret law. And so these briefs, uh, as, as, as uh, together, Champion the notion of government transparency. And they made some compelling points, um, not only going to the overarching purpose of FOIA, but they further pointed out that the overuse and abuse of the deliberative uh, process privilege actually is undermining the purpose of FOIA. And so they um, argued to the court that they not abandon the functional test. They didn't adopt the test advocated for by Sierra Club. Rather, they argued that the court uh, apply a functional test that accounted for the purpose of the exemption, the deliberative process at issue, and I think what is most telling here, the role the particular agency records play in that process and the contents of those records. So that's uh, the first group of amici. The second group uh, I would char characterize as environmental groups. And these would include the brief filed by Center for Biological Diversity and Defenders of Wildlife and the Environmental Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard. Now, these briefs 
go into the nitty-gritty of the um, biological opinions uh, themselves. In other words, they take up, so to speak, the gauntlet of looking at the role these particular records play in the in the decision-making process. And they point to the fact, uh, first of all, that the a biological opinion is not a policy document. It's not a policy decision-making document. It's a scientific factual-based document. And these, uh, the services, and they use that plural, it's Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Services, they look at the agency's role in the consultation process. This is Section 7 consultation under the Endangered Species Act. And that process uh, requires the agency to look at the science that backs agency proposals. And they argue in their brief that the government's approach to Exemption 5 under FOIA would deprive the public of crucial information regarding imperiled species that is generated in the Section 7 consultation process. And they further make the point, and this is, I think, the, the, the most profound point they make, is the fact that the biological opinion may be uh, labeled a draft opinion, it does not uh, lessen its impact. That uh, properly understood in the context of the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, biological opinions are not merely recommendations, but they uh, carry real legal and practical significance. And they, the briefs go on to state, if a federal agency persists with an action that the services have found will cause jeopardy, that is jeopardy to a endangered species, the action may be struck down as unlawful and may re result in liability for take under the ESA of a listed species. So um, they argue pretty forcefully the context in which these biological opinions should be examined. And then finally, we have an amicus brief filed uh, by uh, a group of organizations that I've worked with over the years, and I might put them in the category of um, uh, sound science pro-property rights organizations the American Forest Resource Council, the National Association of Home Builders, NFIB, and American Farm Bureau. And these organizations uh, argue that, again, going back to the purpose of FOIA, that uh, the, the very reason why we have a FOIA in the first place is to promote government accountability and an informed citizenry and that FOIA then accomplishes this objective by ensuring that the public has access to information regarding both what the government does and why the government does what it is, has undertaken. And therefore, they argue that courts not only have, but they advocate that the court should, in, in this case, should have narrowly construed the exemption uh, to disclosure under FOIA. So together, these amicus briefs 
uh, really raised some compelling points that seem not to be fully grappled with in the decision. Altogether, they, they seem to be the groups that are making the point that um, the exemption be, should be construed in the context of the broader principle of limited government and government transparency. So rather than grappling head on with these points in the majority decision, what we see instead is a rather bloodless, tightly reasoned, logical decision and this is what is the most troubling to me, it's devoid of any recognition of how the real world works. Now, surprisingly, in reading the dissenting decision, which Damien mentioned, we've got a seven to two, seven to two decision. Uh, we have two dissenting justices then. Justice Breyer authored the dissent and it's joined by Justice Sotomayor. And I, if, if you read anything about this uh, Sierra Club decision, the one thing you know is that normally um, the first decision written by a new justice on the Supreme Court is expected to be a majority decision. Well, that did not happen here. We have two justices dissenting. And they focus uh, precisely on the points made in the amicus briefs. They um, point out that you you have to look at the context. They, in, in essence, they sort of hearken to the functional test that accounts not only for the purpose of the exemption, but the particular role or the role the particular agency records play in that process and the context of those those records. And Justice Breyer really goes into great detail outlining how the biological opinion works in the in in the role that it plays in agency consultation under Section 7. And just to give you a, a sense of a flavor of, of the detail he goes into he states that transmitting the draft biological opinion to the EPA simply allows the EPA to make its choice before a final biological opinion issues. And he goes on to point out the fact that it's the draft BO, not the final BO, that's a biological opinion, is the document that informs the EPA of the service's conclusions about Jeopardy and sets forth the alternatives. And then it's those alternatives and the conclusion, which is exactly what happened here, by the way, triggers within EPA the process, process of deciding what to do with those conclusions. So here we had the services indicating they set forth their um, reasonable and prudent alternatives and indicated that they were likely to find a jeopard, reach a jeopardy conclusion. And at the end of the day, EPA changed its proposal and the services then were able to issue a non-jeopardy um, opinion, which allows a project to go forward, by the way, without the non 
Jeopardy opinion, you do not go forward or else you run afoul, run the risk of running afoul. You will run afoul of the Endangered Species Act, which has draconian civil and criminal penalties, strict liability penalties, I might also add. I think the most telling point that um, Justice Breyer makes in his dissenting opinion is that he states, Amiki tell us without contradiction that out of 6,829 formal consultations between 2008 and uh, 2015, the FWS issued a final biological opinion finding jeopardy only twice. So I, I think we see that um, there's some real tension here and some some questions that remain unanswered uh, in the majority de decision, and I think it leaves us wanting more in the analysis. So with that, Damien, I don't know if you have any additional points, but I am ready to entertain questions. Yes, thanks, Nancy. I think before we go to questions, I just wanted to, uh, for, I, to first of all, agree with your analysis of the Amiki and the dissent, and but also to emphasize that that there are bases on which uh, both opinions do agree, and I think perhaps the most significant point of agreement is that they both agree that it should be a functional test, and that the, the government can't get around disclosure by by pretextually or superficially considering something to be a draft. But beyond that, I do think that that you're right, Nancy, that. The majority seems to, to really sort of miss the, the, the real context of particularly the consultation process and how these quote-unquote draft documents routinely play a significant role in how the administrative process plays out. But anyway, yes, I think having some questions would, would be a great idea. Perfect. So let's go to audience questions. We will now go to the first caller. Good afternoon. Caller from Eric. There we go. Good afternoon. I was wondering what you think about uh, how every court basically disregarded every standard in Rule 56 uh, in uh, in a FOIA case. And what I mean by that is that you know in, in this case and in most FOIA cases, the district court purported to rule on summary judgment, but it just didn't even mention Rule 56. The Ninth Circuit noted that it was reviewing summary judgment, but it didn't mention Rule 56. And the Supreme Court didn't address anything about Rule 56. Uh, well, you're you're certainly correct, caller. Uh, this was not a, a, a summary judgment analysis. That the court was the Supreme Court has the luxury of focusing on the issues that are of interest to it. And obviously, this issue caught their attention. They felt like they um, saw something they wanted to address in the in the decision. And that was entirely the focus uh, of the decision. Uh, and Rule 56, I think, uh, didn't really play a role in the analysis. You know, it is interesting to, to point out, though, that, that the, the majority uh, did concede that on remand, there, the district court can try to segregate out of these documents material that uh, is not deliberative. And I think that that might be something of a concession to uh, one of the amicus briefs that um, Nancy was mentioning about how, you know, typically these documents they're not really 
biological things are not really policy documents so much as they are just simply scientific analyses and data collection. And perhaps uh, there may be some of that material that Sierra Club will eventually be able to get, although not by virtue of any sort of summary judgment standard. Perfect. Let's go to the next caller. Hi. I wanted to know if you think this fact-specific analysis is going to make it easier or harder to determine whether a document applies to the deliberative process privilege. Well, that's a... That's an, I'm sorry, Nancy, do you want to go first? No, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I mean, that's that's a um, an excellent question. I mean, on its face, you think you, one would think that that there is going to be some sort of uh, fact-bound determination that uh, a court in camera will have to make, especially where there's a contention that something that is ostensibly offered as draft is in fact being treated in practice by the agency as as final. However, I'm not so sure how in depth that review is going to be because, you know, here you had the majority saying, even though some of these documents look awfully final, they weren't actually signed off. And we have this general statement in the record from the decision makers saying, oh, more work needed to be done. But there was absolutely no engagement in the majority opinion uh, in response to Sierra Club's point that, well, wait a second, <laughs> they may have said more work needed to be done, but they weren't talking about the whole document. They were only talking about portions of the document. And in fact, there was a lot of it that, that was not going to be changed. And that should be considered final and not and not exempt. Even though that argument was made to the court, majority opinion really kind of brushes it aside and just takes the um, the declarations from the government decision makers at face value, even though they're very broadly drafted. And I think that might be in part a function of just this general presumption of regularity and good faith on the part of government actors. But I think it does foretell that even though this is ostensibly a functional test with the majority, I think in practice, you're probably going to have to have a pretty good showing on the part of the uh, challenger to demonstrate that something is being treated as final despite a label to the contrary. Yes, I fully agree with uh, Damien here. I, I don't see that this decision helps clarify or um, provide um, discrete signpost or guidepost uh, to the functionality analysis. Uh, I note in, in particular at one point the majority refers to the court determining if there was a charade underway. And I thought, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, that's all we need is to have to be um, conjuring up games or, you know, parlor games in the context of, of uh, a court test or a test that the agency and practitioners are going to be applying. So um, I think we are, we are going to have to grapple document by document and, and realize that in one context, a document may be privileged, and in another context, the same document may not be privileged. So it, it is going to be a, a very factually and 
intensive inquiry. We'll now go to the next caller. Hi, this is Jonathan Wood with Pacific Legal Foundation. I have a question about something Justice Breyer raised in dissent. He said that the exact same document would be outside the privilege if the consultation was over a private permit so that a, a private party was also involved in the the dialogue about the draft biological opinion. I'm wondering, what sense does that distinction make uh, in light of the purposes of the deliberate process privilege? Why is a document any less deliberative or any less final, uh, just depending on who outside the agency is communicated with? Uh, I think you've uh, raised an important point. I remember sort of scratching my head and puzzling over that one as well. Um, I guess it's a point that uh, he and Sotomayor felt uh, considered to be compelling. Uh, I less so, and apparently you as well. Um, I, that's why I didn't mention it in my my discussion, because I didn't see how it really helped the analysis. But maybe I've missed something. Maybe, Damien, you can, you can shed some light on that point. Well, you know, I, I think... I think uh, what he was trying to get at is one of the traditional uh, justifications for the deliberative process privilege. That is uh, one that I think, in fact, the majority opinion uh, adverts to, that we want to uh, encourage full and free discussion among government decision makers. And so they won't engage in that free discussion if they're concerned that their uh, statements may become public knowledge. And uh, I think Justice Breyer's point is that, well, we know for at least some biological opinions, they're always going to be made public because the regulations require that the drafts be provided to uh, the private applicant involved in the process. And once they're provided outside of the government, then the privilege is gone. But I mean, the reality is regardless of the private applicant uh, component. The reality is that that I don't think there's any empirical basis to say that you're going to thwart full discussion just because these documents are subject to disclosure. First of all, I, I mean, you have government employees and decision makers all the time who are engaging in telephone conversations, in-person meetings. None of that is recorded. None of that is subject to disclosure. Moreover, it's always been the case that the government decision maker can make available a document that otherwise would be subject to this exemption. So if you're a low-level staffer, you have absolutely no idea whether what you're writing is going to be definitively subject to this deliberative process privilege because your boss might say, well, you know, I'm going to disclose it anyway because I think it's important for whatever reason. So I just don't think that regardless of Justice Breyer's dissent, I just don't think that the policy basis for this privilege makes a whole lot of sense. And I think that that lack of justification is really highlighted in this case with uh, the consultation process. Right. You you just reminded me, Damien, as well. I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Um, I think what Breyer's trying to say is that, it, it, and I think you, this is the point you were making, is that well, because the decision makers know that the document is going to be made public, <laughs> disclosing it now and, and holding that it's not exempt uh, is it, it has there. There was no chilling that occurred. It, it's not going to increase any chilling of free and frank 
discussion regarding decision uh, decisions that are being made because it's going to be made public in the permitting process. Again, I'm just not sure how far that advances the analysis. I, echoing what Damien said. Perfect. Well, let's go to our next caller. Yes, my question goes to a parallel area of deliberative privilege, and that is in the context of litigation uh, with the federal government, uh, in which the government uh, asserts a deliberative privilege in the context of uh, discovery uh, proceedings or even uh, administrative records. How might this decision impact the application of deliberative process privilege in litigation, and specifically, how might it affect uh, the government's decision to withhold uh, evidence that may be contrary to its position in litigation and uh, simply uh, voluntarily disclose only the parts that support the government's position in the case? Well, I think there's no question that this decision is going to be used uh, under the uh, under uh, instances where the privilege is asserted under the federal rules of civil procedure in um, in uh, litigation um, in in which this privilege is raised. The the government undoubtedly will uh, take this decision and run with it. Um, we see this time and again um, where there is an opportunity to withhold documents from production, uh, and this forms a basis, a rationale for, uh, if nothing else, withholding the documents and requiring um, that there be litigation over whether the privilege really applies, and it's such a fact-based test. Uh, that it invites litigation already, um, that I can see page by page in camera uh, going through through documents, uh, fighting over whether the privilege applies or not. And um, so I think that is just one additional um, result from this decision, perhaps unanticipated again, uh, by the majority in the in the actual decision. I, I agree with Nancy on that, and I would just note that one of the um, ironies of, of, of FOIA is that the privilege, it, as codified in a sense is, under FOIA, is actually in a sense I think stronger than it is in in litigation. In litigation, my understanding is that you can overcome the privilege on a showing of need and that there isn't really anything like that under FOIA, that, that if the privilege otherwise applies, then, then the document does not have to be d disclosed. But I, I do agree with Nancy's analysis as to, as to how the decision may affect, once in fact the, the privilege is invoked, how it's going to, to play out in litigation. Let's go to the next caller. Uh, yes, thanks very much. Um, just returning to the uh, penultimate uh, uh, question, and I haven't read either the majority or the dissent uh, on this, but uh, with respect to the excludability of uh, matters involving a private party, uh, I would think that that would be covered by Privacy Act considerations. 
Um, I don't know if Justice Breyer addressed that in his in his opinion or just was an oversight. Um, I mean, whether or not it inappropriately would be excluded under FOIA, uh, it seems like, you know, it seems like it'd be moot under Privacy Act considerations. I don't recall that Justice Breyer addressed the Privacy Act. I'm pretty sure he didn't. Damien, do you have a, a different recollection? No, that's mine as well. And I, I, I think, I think his point in making that point was simply to, to show that that because the exemption uh, is deemed to have been lost once a document is released to anybody in the public, that that supports his view that well, you have at least a, a subset of these documents of biological opinions that by regulation are going to be released to the public anyway. And that suggests that that as a category, these documents probably don't need to be subject to the exemption. Right, well, thank you. I, I guess it, uh, and and perhaps that reasoning, you know, if he's sort of seeking a reducto ad absurdum, you know, based on based on that line of reasoning, then that might be true. If the, you know, if FOIA had been passed and the Privacy Act hadn't been, but I'm just sort of curious if his, you know, if he's, you know, setting up a straw man there in in you know, trying to point out an apparent inconsistency when it would otherwise be exempt. But thank you very much. I could add, I should add too, I mean, it could be that, 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 that uh, you know, personal information would be redacted anyway so that you could satisfy whatever, um, whatever privacy issues are presented by disclosing it generally to the public. And, um, but at the same time, uh, satisfy the, the general FOIA obligation to make public otherwise disclosable information. Yeah, I, I am sure that would be the case. They're not going to be releasing um, confidential information, such as social security numbers and so forth. I think Breyer even went to that point in the first place was he was responding to the majority decision, which emphasized that the very purpose for the privilege is to encourage this free and frank and open government decision-making. We don't want government decision-makers chilled in their ability to um, talk about and analyze decisions they have to make. And so I think he was responding by saying, well, look, um, you know, this exemption may not apply anyway because if there's a permit application issue that you've got to address, then the documents will be disclosed anyway. So the disclosure will occur. So I, I think it didn't go much farther than that, his, his reasoning for discussing that. Well, it doesn't look like we have any more questions in the queue. Uh, Damian, Nancy, do you have any concluding thoughts? I don't. But I, uh, once again, want to take the opportunity to thank you for uh, being invited to, uh, to participate in this. I think it's really a fascinating case, and um, I've, I've enjoyed participating. Likewise, and, and, and I, I also think that this is one of those interesting cases whereby you do have, as Nancy pointed out earlier, an interesting alignment of groups. You have both sort of um, good government groups, environmental groups, uh, property rights, um, uh, uh, sort of industry groups, all sort of aligned against the government, and yet um, the government uh, at least wins arguably um, uh, uh, just a narrow win, but nevertheless still wins 
seven to two. So a very interesting case and and appreciate the opportunity to talk about it today with Nancy and, and, and on FedSoc. Perfect. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for calling in and participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. As always, keep an eye out on our website and uh, your email inbox for announcements about upcoming telephone calls and virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.